Tonight I'd like to continue on the five hindrances. And last time I spoke, I spoke about sloth and torpor. And tonight I'd like to go into the hindrance of doubt and the hindrance of restlessness. So if you'll remember, when I spoke about the hindrances, I talked about how they are considered to be visitors of the mind, and how the mind itself is inherently pure. But there are visitors that come and go to the mind, and when we're not mindful of them, they hinder our ability to experience life clearly to experience life wisely. Sometimes they are known as the defilements or the dark forces because, again, when they aren't recognized, they lead to more darkness, they lead to unhappiness, to confusion. They usually come out of the force of habit. And with the practice of mindfulness, we break this chain of delusionary habit. Sometimes mindfulness is referred to as the light of the mind. And sometimes there are uh, references to the light of mindfulness. Manindra used to say that when mindfulness is there, darkness cannot exist with it. It dispels the darkness. It illuminates the field of consciousness. And so we get to see what's there very clearly. And so a lot of times we see these dark forces, these habitual patterns, these hindrances in our moment-to-moment experience, and we think, oh no, this is not supposed to be happening. But indeed, it is because of the light of mindfulness. It, that light illuminates the field, and we see what has been hidden. What has been hidden reveals itself. The folds in our mind and heart unfold. The tangles disentangle. The knots loosen. And so what is released we see more clearly in the light of mindfulness. There's a saying I'm paraphrasing by Carl Jung. Enlightenment doesn't mean envisioning bodies of light. It is making the darkness known. So this is our practice of making the darkness known. Usually we have a relationship to these uh, forces of the mind, sloth and torpor, doubt, aversion, restlessness, and desire, these five hindrances, we have a relationship to them of delusion, of not seeing clearly. And with our practice of mindfulness, we're transforming our relationship to them so that our relationship to them is one of awareness, of one of seeing clearly. And in that awareness, inherent in that awareness, is a letting go. Not necessarily 
something that we control or something that we forcefully do, but it's something that we actually see, that we actually experience, that things are going, and so we let them go because that's how it is. They're coming, they're changing, and they're going. And we begin to align ourselves with how things are more. So we really can't hide from the mirror of mindfulness. Things get illuminated, the landscape, the terrain of our hearts and our minds, the sharp edges, the pitfalls, the abysses, the roughness, and all the beautiful qualities are seen more clearly. And as we see them more clearly and more deeply, as we recognize what's going on, as we use that energy to see more deeply into the nature of it instead of acting it out, so we, restri we restrain from uh, ourselves from acting out, and we begin to reframe our understanding of that moment's experience we see that moment as an opportunity to awaken rather than an abyss to fall in. So there's recognizing what's going on, restraining from using our energy to act it out and rather using that energy to <coughs> see, experience that moment more deeply. Reframing and then revealing we come to see what that moment reveals. Deeper, unique characteristics that open us to a more impersonal level of experience. When we begin to see this place, this place of the impersonal level of experience, that things are just coming and going. We really don't have any control over it. When we open to this place and experience it deeply, it begins to release us from the prison of taking ourselves so seriously. So as I go over these two hindrances, I may re-mention uh, how we can work with them, recognizing, restraining, reframing, revealing their unique characteristics, and also realizing their universal characteristics. Universal characteristics are the characteristic of anicca, impermanence, of dukkha, or the unsatisfactoriness the vulnerability of life, and anatta, the conditional nature of all of life. So the first um, one to speak about this evening is doubt. And in the text it's described, it's referred to specifically as skeptical doubt. And this skeptical doubt is also characterized in the text as a pond that is stirred up and muddy. And this is, you know, metaphorically speaking, our minds stirred up and muddy. Uh, 
it's manifested in actual subjective experience as feeling perplexed, confused, indecisive, sometimes cynical about what's going on, skeptical. There, um, you know, we get these questions, and it's very simple. You know, we're sitting there and we don't know what to do with our attention. Should I go to the breath or should I go to hearing? Should I be with this aversion or should I do loving kindness? You know, it's, there's, the mind is kind of going in many different directions. It can't settle somewhere. It doesn't know what to do. It starts considering other possibilities. Should I go to grandma's? You know, <laughs> I hear that a lot. <laughs> so, it's, these are the ways that it gets confused, that confusion, perplexity, and decisiveness manifests itself. Um, sometimes we, we think a lot about it. You know, we try, we're confused, we don't know what to do, so we end up going into thinking about what's going on, over-intellectualization of what's happening. We try to intellectualize our way out of it, and it gets to feel like we're a dog chasing our tail. You know, we just kind of spin out in circles, and it, it seems like such the right thing to do to go into, you know, just thinking and figuring it out, but we come out of that even more confused. It's really hard to just stand in the middle of that place of indecisiveness, of feeling confused, and just feel it subjectively. We have the habit pattern of thinking about it. We go into papancha mind which is an elaboration of what's going on, layer upon layer upon layer, which takes us further and further away from the direct experience of it. So always considering other possibilities. You know, you, uh, uh, you think, well, maybe I should just go to the room and read Joseph Goldstein's first book on the experience of insight, you know. <laughs> it's all, that book is all about what happens in a month-long retreat, day by day. And we go to the room and we start reading it and, well, duh, we're in the retreat, you know. <laughs> Why don't we put the book away and experience it? But we don't, we can't think of that when we're in doubt. It's like we're grasping for answers somewhere else other than within ourselves. So those are all the ways that doubt manifest, manifests itself. It's like we go everywhere else except in the direct experience of it. Just being in the middle of that storm or that pond of mud and feeling how that is. This is from a great philosopher, a philosophical comedian, Woody Allen. I couldn't help but put this in. I am plagued by doubts. What if everything is really an illusion and nothing exists?
In that case, I definitely overpaid for my carpet. That has a deeper and deeper meaning for me. <laughs> you know, like, what am I doing? What's all this acquiring for, you know? It's all, <laughs> oh well. <laughs> um, so, doubt, of course, is a manifestation of a lack of faith. And sometimes that lack of faith manifests in lack of faith in the teaching or the, or the practice. You know, um, you listen to the teaching and it's, you know, it's just all going in here and it doesn't make any sense. It's sort of going in the intellect and it's hard to experience it directly from that place. And so naturally we can have a doubt in it when it's not experientially uh, realized or practiced. So we can have doubt in the teaching. We can have doubt in the teacher. You know, we see, we begin to see that, oh, you know, that teacher isn't so perfect, but that's basically the way it is with most teachers. <laughs> And so you see, oh, should I, you know, should I put my faith in that? And again, it's putting the attention outside of oneself and not seeing within oneself the truth to be experienced, to be realized. Manindra used to say, a perfect rose can be offered by an imperfect giver. But we do have lack of faith in our teachers sometimes, or doubt. And when that happens, the only thing we can do is take what we know how to do and practice to do it ourselves, to see for ourselves. The third doubt that comes up is um, a doubt in one's ability to do the practice can't do it. You know, you just can't do it for yourself. And you feel so inadequate. I found it uh, really helpful in recent years, in the last couple of years, to open my heart and my understanding to that wonderful way that the Tibetan Buddhists look at practice. Um, that we don't do our practice just for ourselves, but for the benefit of all beings. And I found that so helpful because it seems sometimes that I really can't do it for myself. But I can when I think that it might help others for me to deepen my understanding. Or sometimes in a moment I think, I'm not just, I'm not doing this for myself, but I dedicate this practice or this sitting 
to my granddaughter. That really helps, you know, at the beginning of a sitting. When I used to go off to practice when my children were smaller and I didn't, um, you know, I had to leave them because I had this deep urge to go and practice. And I would feel like what would get in the way a lot was homesickness. I get homesick so much. And um, and then I feel guilty, you know, that I left the kids or that I wasn't there for them. And um, so one thing I used to do is at the beginning of a sitting, I would dedicate that sitting to one of my children or to the people that were helping me, their father that were helping me so that I could go to do the practice. And that really helped a lot because it took a lot of the of the focus off of myself. It gets us out of that small framework of self and it releases us from that prison when we do the practice not just for ourselves but for something greater than ourselves. When we can surrender to something greater than ourselves. It's a way of loosening the attachment, that attachment that we have to a sense of self, and seeing that life is not just all about me, or I, or mine. It's a way of opening to something greater. It's a way of opening to the understanding of no separate self, you know, which is something greater than just oneself, everything revolving around my problems, my inadequacy, my feeling of not being able to do it right, my guilt. You know, there's something so um, solid about even that, you know, solid sense of self that forms around inadequacy, guilt. And so opening it to something greater loosens <laughs> that solidity. It breaks that solidity up. Achan Buddhadasa used to say, if you can't understand no self, you can understand it through non-selfishness. We have a friend, I've told this story, some of you have heard it, but it's worth telling again. We have a friend who lives in back of us. His, his name is Buzzy, and he's a, um, <coughs> he's a personal trainer. And so he offers to us some training in, uh, you know, kind of, uh, he calls our club the Buddhist with biceps. <laughs> <laughs> so he's trying to get us buffed up a little bit, but uh, as you can see, <laughs> it's a hopeless case. We sit a lot. <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, <laughs> um, so one, you know, I was telling him one day that I sit a lot, you know, when I'm teaching, and uh, so he says, well, Kamala, we just have to get out there, up on, out on Thompson Road, and I'm going to help you, you know, uh, move your butt a little bit. <laughs> so, <laughs> basically, that's what he said. So I said, okay. <laughs> So I said, okay, I thought he was kidding. <laughs> you know, this, this was last in the last winter retreat. 
And he said, no, I'm serious. He, he has a class every morning, but, uh, you know, some, there are mornings he, he has class later, and uh, like 8 o'clock. So I said, well, the only time I can do it is at 6.30. So he said, you're on. I'm going to meet you out there at 6.30 outside <laughs> of the gate. So the first day I went along Thompson Road with him, he has this way of, you know, talking to me as we go along and saying, come on, you can do it, keep going, you know, and he, ma he makes me run up the hills and I have a choice of walking on the flat places, but I definitely have to walk when we go down the, the little hills. So we were, we were doing it and we got to the, almost the end of where he had marked the end for me. And it was this, this big, this uh, hill that's probably some of you realize it already. It's the, the steepest hill you come up to on the way back. And um, he calls it Heartbreak Hill. <laughs> so anyway, we were going up the hill and I was telling him, I can't do it anymore, Buzzy. I can't do it. I can't do it. And he says, come on, you got to keep doing it. And I just stopped and I said, sorry, I just can't go anymore. I was really out of breath, out of shape. And he said, Kamala, all this, this time you've jogged this road, you've done it for yourself, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, you know those yogis in there? And I said, yeah. And he says, this part is for those yogis. <laughs> so I said, oh, okay, for the benefit of all beings. So <laughs> that's how I got up that hill, for the benefit of all beings. And I think of that a lot when I'm in practice, when there's doubt in my ability to do the practice, you know, that I just can't get through that, you know, another round of another layer of deep dukkha. And if I say for the benefit of all beings, it really helps dedicating it that way. Somebody told me the other day that she has a friend who's suffering greatly and it was she she got to an edge in her practice and it was really hard for her to go on. But she thought about her friend and she, then she said, I can do it for her. And that's what helped her get through. So opening to something greater than ourselves, than our feeling of my inadequacy, I feel guilty. You know, this, all this stuff about I, me, mine, whichever angle we're coming at, that's so small. So opening it up, making it into something bigger. Uh, so it's not just for ourselves. When I first moved here, and I was, uh, I had these three kids, and I was, um, you know, temporarily, I was in temporary insanity a lot of the times, trying to raise them. I knew I couldn't do it myself. It was so hard. I knew I couldn't do it myself, and I, you know, I. I just sort of surrendered to, okay, what do I do next? You know, to something bigger than what my little small heart and mind could muster up to keep going. And um, I would take them to the beach because that was much bigger. <laughs> and I wouldn't keep thinking about what to do. You know, and, and 
um, those beaches on Maui helped me raise my kids. That was something bigger than myself. It was something that I could surrender to, you know, like Mother Earth, like just laying down on the ground and saying, okay, I surrender. So, opening to something bigger than oneself. The proximate cause for doubt to arise is a lack of investigation. A lot of times, uh, you know, something that happens around doubt is boredom. And that's one of the signs that doubt is nearby, boredom. That boredom also is a lack of investigation. That manifests sometimes as wanting more stimulation, that boredom, you know, just trying to find something that will awaken the mind. Sometimes we do it by distracting ourselves instead of coming back into our hearts, into our bodies, into our minds, and experiencing what's going on in that moment, getting more curious about what's going on. I'd like to read something to you from um, Albert Einstein. He says, I think people generally overestimate me. I realize, of course, the value of my contributions to science, but I don't consider myself superior or different from any other being. I'm not more gifted than anyone else. I'm just more curious. <laughs> curiosity, that kind of curiosity that helps us to see things new, to see things fresh, to look more closely, to not be satisfied with just being on the surface of things, to be able to feel it, you know, with our bodies, our minds, our hearts, every way that we can, to have that kind of childlike mind that's open and receptive, not with any preconceived ideas about how things should be, but just a mind that is like a beginner's mind. You know, there's that saying by Suzuki Roshi, a beginner's mind has many possibilities, an expert's mind has few. So just opening to um, what's new about this moment, can we let the moment in, you know, without going after it in some way that we need to change it or be, have it be in a certain way? Just receive it, rest in it more. A lot of times you can look at how children are, and that's a great teaching, you know, how children receive the moment. When I was trying to um, remember back to when my own children were little and opening to what they could teach me, well, they still teach me, but when they were little, there were things about nature that they taught me that I, I was too busy to see. You know, that my, I was racing through life so much, trying to keep it together, being in survival mode, that I just didn't have the time to see didn't give myself the time and that open, empty space of seeing. 
And I remember once taking my daughter, um, one of my daughters, my third daughter, down to a place where, where Steve and I go um, snorkeling, even now. And so we were going through the water a little bit. I was going with her. And um, we looked down. It was a especially clear day and a still day. The water was very still. And we looked down and we saw a piece of coral that was so, so blue in the middle of it. It was like there was this all different colors on the outside, but you had to really um, kind of hold yourself still in some way to look at that particular, that clump and see the deep, deep, deep blue in the middle of it that I would have missed. But it took a child's eyes and a child's heart and mind to show that to me. You know, because I was so busy just trying to get around the lava flow where the coral grows. But she said, look, stop, look at this. And so, you know, as she was looking um, down in the water with her goggles on, I would, I just kind of look at her and see, you know, what, how she was receiving that. And um, that didn't come clear to me until, you know, just remembering this story, just how I would look to her of how she would receive the moment, that place. And we can do that too, you know, to see the deep, deep blues or the deep, deep whatever (coughs) of the moment. It takes a kind of receptive awareness to, to do that, an empty awareness to do that, when we're not thinking about how things are, but we're receiving how things are with that kind of emptiness, that kind of openness of mind. This is... Um, forget the name of this poet right now, it'll come to me, but the, the title of her poem is Stars. Here in my head, language keeps making its tiny noises. How can I hope to be friends with the hard white stars whose flaring and hissing are not speech but a pure radiance? How can I hope to be friends with the yawning spaces between them where nothing ever is spoken? Tonight, at the edge of the field, I stood very still and looked up and tried to be empty of words. And this is how that um, that purity of curiosity is. It's empty of words. It's a direct experience of the moment. It said that um, I told you uh, the other day about how connecting with what's happening in the moment dispels sloth and torpor. And sustaining 
after connecting with that moment, sustaining the attention around what's happening dispels doubt, the hindrance of doubt. And the reason why this is so is because when we sustain our attention to what's happening, it's like when I was in that water with my daughter and I just stayed there with her and, and looked more closely and deeply at what is happening. When, that w- when there was that kind of investigation and curiosity, then there was no doubt because the moment was clear. And I didn't have to think about it. I could experience it directly. And so they say that sustaining on whatever's happening in the moment dispels doubt. Sometimes you hear this word to rub the awareness on the moment, to do a kind of rubbing. And, I mean, it's, it's sort of a funny word to use for um, this practice, but it's an effective word. Try it in your practice. You know, when you're with whatever's happening, the breath, just take the breath and connect with the breath with the, um, with the note, you know, in or out, and then rub the attention on that moment. And you'll see that the awareness deepens into it. It's, it that deepening is the investigation, is the factor of enlightenment called investigation, the deepening into that moment. So, when there is... Uh, when there is that kind of deepening in that moment, then confidence is there. You know, we, confidence is the opposite of doubt, of course, but we can't get to confidence until there is that direct experience, that direct investigation, that opening to the moment. Because when we're really clear about that moment, there can be no doubt, and there is a faith in ourselves. So that's what dispels, you know, this doubt in oneself to do the practice. That confidence arises. It's that confidence and that faith that brings us to to the edge, as Steve was speaking last night about. It's that confidence and faith that lets us go to the edge, to where that river flows, that is the unknown, that is, you know, we haven't stepped into yet. Sometimes people refer to the teachings of the Buddha as a a parallel to homeopathic healing, because we take a little bit of what the disease is, and we take it in, and by taking it in, that's what actually Um, cures us. It's what heals us. It's what strengthens our own immune system by taking part of that in. So can we go to the edge with that faith, with that confidence? Can we go to the edge where that river flows that we haven't stepped into yet? And can we drink from that 
those waters? Can we drink from that water, from those waters where there is anger or fear or where that dagger is in our bellies that is surrounded by memories of abandonment or abuse? Can we go to the water's edge and drink from the place where we feel lonely? And can we taste that loneliness? Can we taste the pain of that dagger? Can we taste the pain of that fear? It's by tasting that, by knowing that edge, by investigating that, that brings up our confidence. Because then the unknown becomes known. So this is how doubt is dispelled when the unknown becomes known. And it's by going there, by tasting of it. The first thing that um, we can do with doubt is recognize that it's there. It's hard to recognize it because it's so obscured by, you know, the mind running around trying to figure out what to do, by distracting ourselves because we just can't turn mindfulness back on itself, back on our own hearts. So sometimes we have, it takes a little time before we say, oh, this confusion is just doubt, or this indecisiveness is just doubt. And a lot of times by naming it, just right then and there, it dispels it. Because that recognition is like a light on the moment. And it begins to, that recognition begins to reveal something more deep than the storyline that we might have been caught in. It sinks deeply into the actual visceral experience of what's happening. So see how it is. What does doubt explore that terrain? What does doubt feel like subjectively in the body, mind? For me, it feels like um, I'm a broken piece of glass, and I just feel like my mind and body and heart are just spread apart, and I can't seem to get it together. This is what doubt can feel like. One thing that when I'm feeling like the mind is going all over the place, one thing that I can come back to that's really easy is the breath. If you can be with one breath, just one whole breath from the beginning, the middle, to the end of one whole breath, even if the mind flitters off a little bit, keep coming back. If you can know without a doubt what's happening in that moment, that moment is dispelling doubt. So just being with something that's really clear to you can dispel doubt. Turning your mind to a moment of hearing can dispel doubt. When you don't know what to do, go to something really simple and get really curious about it. Hmm. 
So a little bit about restlessness, the fourth, uh, the, the third hindrance. In the suttas, it's referred to restlessness and remorse. And that was really interesting um, to find that out for me just recently. Remorse has that element of restlessness in the mind. And sometimes we refer to restlessness a lot in just the body. But there can be restlessness in the heart and the mind when there is remorse, of course. So if you've ever felt like, you know, you just want to jump out of your skin and you're kind of visualizing, but you are, I hope, restraining yourself from actually acting (laughs) it out, Um, but you can just see yourself so clearly jumping off of your sitting cushion, running out of the door, shouting obscenities. (laughs) (laughs) All of us have felt that. (laughs) This is restlessness. It's really easy to, (laughs) to see. It might be that gross, you know, it might be grosser than that, um, you know, breaking the windows, whatever, Um, anxiety, worry, disquiet in the mind, regret, any kind of inner turmoil, a simmering kind of uh, disquiet in the mind. All of this can be manifestations of restlessness. It's difficult, of course, to sit still. You know, you th- any little thing, any little itch, you know, you just move. And it's, it's so hard to, to find a place that's comfortable in the body. Sometimes, uh, you know, because we're so restless in the body, it kind of overspills into the mind. And we find ourselves thinking the same old subject uh, again and again and again, you know, for the hundredth, hundredth millionth time. Or we might be writing that book or redecorating the house, just keeping the energy of the mind spinning around. Um, all the energy goes into the thinking then. You know, when you find yourself thinking over and over and over again, this is restlessness. It's a mind that's really unsteady. You know, when it goes to even the breath, it can't stay with the breath. It has, it slips off the breath. It either just slips off the breath, sometimes it overshoots um, the breath or the object. You know, it's, it's like there's so much energy that it can't, like Upandita would say, it can't hit the mark. You know, it's kind of overshooting the mark or it's so slippery, it's not staying on. And it goes from one thing to another, can't keep still. So when we see that this is happening, uh, the first thing to do, of course, is to recognize what's going on. And sometimes just the recognition of it is really settling. Just recognizing, oh, this is restlessness. Because a lot of times we're restless and we think, I just can't do this, I'm not a good yogi, and, you know, we're in our heads about it. But when we just recognize, oh, it's just restlessness, and feel it in the body, it's a lot easier for things to settle down. Using that as practice, 
just using that very moment and knowing that this is the very object of my attention. This is the very place where the mind can awaken, where the heart can awaken. There are two ways that we can work with restlessness, and they're opposite from one another. But trying each one, you know, you'll see which one helps you in the moment. Usually when we have restlessness in the body, it's said that when there's restlessness in the body, it's like a bull needing a bigger pasture. And so what you need to do is open your eyes and just feel yourself sitting in a bigger space. And sometimes that alone will settle the body. If, you, if that doesn't work, then uh, open the awareness to hearing to a much bigger area. You close your eyes, open to hearing, and sometimes just the expansion of the space will help to settle the body. If there's a lot of restlessness in the mind, you know, where the mind's going all over the place and can't keep still, um, find a steady place in the body. It may be the breath, but a, a lot of times it's not the breath. It may be just feeling oneself sitting on the cushion, feeling the buttocks on the cushion, and that coming, bringing the attention to that one pinpointed space, keeping the attention there can help unify the, the mind and can settle the mind. Those things that really can help. If you're, if you're really restless, during a, the next walking period, take a fast walk. And usually that helps to balance out the energy in the body and in the mind. So these are the, the two hindrances that you might begin to have more tools to work with and to understand more compassionately that this is the very place to do our practice. Know how it manifests moment to moment in your own practice. Really get familiar with the terrain. So I'd like to end with this poem by Wendell Berry, and it's called The Broken Ground. The opening out and out, the breaking through which the new comes, perching above its shadow on the piling up darkened, broken old husks of itself, bud opening to flower, opening to fruit, opening to sweet marrow of the seed, taken from what was, from what could have been. What is left is what is. So let's sit for a moment. <coughs> 